When we begin to meditate, the mind begins to wander. For most people, the activity of the mind never ceases. And most people cannot stop the continual flow of thoughts, but what they can do is not to attend to it, to let it flow and quietly observe it like clouds in the sky, while the deeper mind, the spirit within, remains quietly resting in the presence of God. However, there are other forms of distraction which cannot be so easily dismissed. The ordinary distractions, we can let them go. But there are some which are much more serious. There are forces in the unconscious which have been repressed and can form a permanent block in the soul if they are not faced. You know, Father Tony de Mello started this Sardana Institute outside Pune to be a sort of institute for spirituality. And he found that most people, particularly priests and nuns who came, had so many psychological blocks. He had to give a psychological course before he get on to spirituality. So this is very important. Father John felt that these forces should be faced at other times and in other ways, and this may be necessary. But I think there are times when they have to be allowed to come up into consciousness in meditation. Many people experience strong feelings of anger, hatred, resentment, fear, anxiety, which are a constant source of disturbance. And if they're allowed to come up in meditation, they can be open to a deeper level of consciousness, the consciousness of Christ within. It's these repressed feelings of anger, hatred, resentment, fear, anxiety. These are the big blocks in our minds. And you see, what we realize today is they go right back into infancy. Even before birth, you see, the child in the womb is subject to the emotional stress of the mother. And we're all being conditioned in the womb with fear, anxiety, you see. And then when the child is born, the first two years, all the strains and stresses, particularly, of course, of a difficult marriage or the difficult psyche of the mother or whatever, all these things are affecting the child emotionally at a profound depth. And when you're 40 or 50, you begin to discover what happened when you were one year old. These are all repressed feelings. You see, the child cannot express its feelings. And particularly, the child is neglected. It feels uh, totally abandoned. It, your mother is your one support, the one meaning in life, and she leaves you, and you're totally lost. And that feeling of total insecurity. Some people, it, it's terrifying you how it affects them right into their lives. Other feelings, you know, many people have a deep hatred of their mother, you know. But they don't know how to say so, they don't even think so. <laughs> but it comes out in time, this feeling that they were neglected, even maltreated very often. And we know today child abuse is a terrible problem, isn't it? And sexual abuse. They're facing terrible things that children suffer, you see. And they're all wounds in our psyche. They go on and on, you see. And unless we're aware of these things, they can't be healed. But the moment we become aware and accept them and understand, they can be healed. It's very important. They call it a healing of memories. And sometimes you have to have a psychologist to help you. There are various methods. Transactional analysis is one very helpful method. And of course, the Jungian analysis in general. And often people need somebody to help them to discover I had a great friend, a sister who was a doctor. Her problem was losing her temper. It was a real problem in her life. And she found that when she went to her analysis that at the age of six, her mother died. And the shock of that, you know, had given a deep feeling of insecurity. And that made her easily disturbed like that. And then that still didn't cure her. And she went again and they found that at the age of two, she realized that she was not wanted. Her mother and father, they wanted a boy, I think it was, and they didn't want a girl, and she felt not wanted. And when the child realized it's not wanted, it's rejected, it's a terrible wound in the sight. These things are very terrifying, really. But as I say, we have to face them, and they can be healed.
And sometimes your very wounds are the things that awaken you to deeper life. It's that the grace of God comes through the wounds in your psyche, you know. It's those that upset you and you think it's terrible, but actually it's God opening you up to a deeper level of consciousness. In meditation, they can be opened up to a deeper level of consciousness, the consciousness of Christ within. Quietly open it up, let it come with the mantra, go on repeating the mantra, and let Christ come in, you see, to heal the wounds, that is the need. Sahaviryam karavavahai Tejasvinavaditamastu Mavidvishavahai Om Shanti 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 In meditation, it's a terrible wound in the psyche anger, hatred, resentment, fear, anxiety, which are a constant source of disturbance. It can be opened up to a deeper level of consciousness, the consciousness of Christ within. Quietly open it up, let it come with the mantra, go on repeating the mantra, and let Christ come in, you see, to heal the wounds. And if they're allowed to come up in meditation, they can be open to a deeper level of consciousness, the consciousness of Christ within. This is a way of realizing the compassion of Christ. When he descended into hell, he had to face all those hostile forces in the unconscious, and by his patient endurance was able to set us free. You see, Jesus on the cross, they say he descended into hell, and I think that means he descended into the unconscious. And in every human being, beneath your personal unconscious, with all these wounds of childhood, is the collective unconscious. We've all got links with humanity right back to the beginning. One Jungian analyst said he thought every human being recapitulates in the womb, first of all, the stages of, of physical evolution, and secondary of psychological evolution, all the past of humanity is in us, you know. We have to encounter these uh, deep feelings in the unconscious. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, went into the unconscious and he knew the whole past of humanity. All humanity is in him, you see, and he knew the wounds of humanity. That's why he bore our wounds on the cross, you see. And that is where his compassion is, you see. There's nothing that can happen in a child or anyone which Jesus doesn't know in himself, in the depths of his being, he's experienced our, our human tragedy, you see. He encounters these forces and he overcomes them by endurance. You don't overcome these forces by fighting them and pushing them with your ego again, of course, but letting them come up. And when they come up to surrender to God, then they can be healed and reconciled. All these demons which Jesus encountered in the New Testament are repressed forces of the unconscious, you see. From childhood you repress your anger, your fear, your hatred, your desire, all these things, and they come up in violent forms which you can't control. So we're all faced with this. And Jesus faced this conflict of the human being in the unconscious. And by his love, you see, total self-giving, surrendered to all those contrary forces and allowed them to have their work on him and then carried them through in his own body, in his own being, to the Father, to the source of grace and compassion. And that is our redemption, really. In this way, meditation becomes an encounter with the redeeming Christ. Very important, you see. It's an encounter with the redeeming Christ. We all need this redemption. And very often today we try to, you know, make the best of life and, and think that things are really not so bad. But it doesn't work up to, after a time. 
I mean, we have to face these deep wounds in ourselves and our whole society and allow that grace to come, that healing to come. We must always remember that the Christ we encounter in meditation is the risen Christ who has carried the wounds of our humanity into the bosom of the Father, that is, into the ground of being, and has brought final reconciliation. Jesus has taken all these wounds of our humanity into himself, surrendered them to God, to the Father, you see, and that is redemption. These forces in the unconscious are cosmic forces, you see, because we're not simply isolated individuals, nor are we simply a particular human group. We belong to this whole humanity which is part of a wider cosmos. And therefore, in the unconscious, these forces of violence, of hatred, of fear, and so on, they're not simply human, you know. That's what we mean by demons, you see. And there are, there are demons and angels in the unconscious. There are angels, you see, powers of light, of grace, of healing, are in our unconscious, <coughs> powers of death and destruction and cruelty and revenge and hate. And all these, you know, things going on today in Israel and the Palestinians in black and white in Africa and Hindus and Muslims and Catholics and Protestants in Ireland, all these are collective forces of the unconscious, you see. We are driven by these terrible forces. And Hitler was a supreme example, you see. He was a psychic, you know, and he had certain psychic uh, experiences. And he was dominated by these forces, the destructive forces in the unconscious, you see. And it had a terrific power. I remember a Jew came to our monastery in England during the war, and he heard Hitler speak, and he said he went on for about three hours, ranting and passionate, flow of language, you know. He said you couldn't resist it, you wanted to go and fight for him, you know. It was so powerful. So the terrible forces in the unconscious, which can be so destructive and so creative, of course. And you must always remember the evil forces have always something good in them, and if you can discover the hidden good, you can release it from the evil and they become creative. So all our destructive forces are potentially creative, you know. That's why you don't want to destroy sin, you know. Sin has always got something good in it. You never see sin in itself. You always seek the good behind it. And if you can release the good, then the evil which is distorting it will, will depart. And you don't overcome darkness by fighting it, simply by bringing in the light, see. And Jesus has taken all these wounds of ours into the Father and brought about our final reconciliation. And when we enter into meditation, we encounter the redeeming Christ who knows us and understands us and shares our feelings, has complete compassion for us, you see. We don't, of course, have to think of all this, simply in meditation. But total surrender in love involves immersion in the depths of the Spirit who reconciles us in Christ to the Father. Once we surrender to the Spirit, which is love within, it brings about this reconciliation in Christ and takes us back to the Father, to the source. Om Tejasvina vadita mastu ma vidvishavahai Om Shanti 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 To enter deeply into meditation is to enter into the mystery of suffering love. It's to encounter the woundedness of our human nature. We're all deeply wounded from our infancy and bear these wounds in the unconscious. The repetition of the mantra is a way of opening these depths of the unconscious and exposing them to the light. This is part of the wound of humanity which has grown in us from the beginning of time. 
And we're not isolated individuals when we meditate. You see, we enter into the whole human suffering, the whole human content. The demons or devils encountered in the New Testament are the repressed forces of the unconscious which torment humanity. But the unconscious also contains the redemptive forces, the healing powers which can set us free. Once the active mind has been silenced, and it's the active mind which keeps all this down, we can encounter the deeper mind which is exposed to good and evil forces, to angels and demons. And meditation, as the fathers of the desert and St. Benedict so clearly realized, is an encounter with these contrary forces. They often said you went to the desert to fight with demons, you see. You knew all these forces were going to come up in your unconscious. People think, oh, I'll go away and be alone, and I'll be happy then, but all your professed feelings start coming up then, you see. This is why meditation, to silence the rational, discursive mind, <clears throat> is to expose oneself to these conflicting parts. This is, of course, the danger of taking psychedelic drugs, which open up the unconscious. You see, a psychedelic drug can do that. It stops the rational mind, opens up the unconscious. And sometimes you get wonderful creative powers come up and people are in ecstasy. But at the same time, the opposite powers begin to come up. You see, so it's terribly dangerous. You expose yourself to the creative and to the destructive forces. For a Christian, we have to open ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit which through the mantra keeps us in touch with the redeeming Christ, the power which alone can reconcile these opposing forces within us. This shows the necessity for meditation to be sorted by Lexio Divina. In our meditation, we need this support all the time. If you expose yourself to these things without support, you can be torn to pieces, you know, by these forces. But when we rely on the mantra to keep us in touch with Christ in the Holy Spirit, then we have something which prevents that destructive power. Unless we meditate on the scriptures and learn to understand the mystery of redemption, we cannot encounter these hidden forces without injury. So we need this Lectio Divina, this meditation on the scriptures, in the Middle Ages, there were four stages in the course of, of prayer. Lexio, meditatio, oratio, contemplatio. Lexio is reading, and that for most people today, of course, is normal. We read more than people have ever done before, and I think it's very valuable. Lexio, reading scriptures or meditative books or books on the spiritual life, that is a way of initiation. Then the next stage, meditatio, is simply reflecting on your reading, reflecting on the scriptures, reflecting on what you've read and studied. And that is a necessary stage. Then comes oratio, when we begin to pray. We turn to God, we ask for grace, we thank God, and we ask for forgiveness and so on. And these are the normal stages of prayer. And we need to keep in touch with the normal stages of prayer, you know. We shouldn't make much to take us out of normal Christian prayer. I think it's important. But we really do need that biblical-based prayer. Finally, this leads to contemplatio, the recollection of the divine mystery in the heart, in the center of our beings. So, lexio, Meditatio ratio should normally lead to contemplatio as the fullness of Christian prayer. This leads to this recollection of divine mystery in the heart, where we come directly under the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is everywhere in the nature, the world around, in people, everything. But our direct contact is at that point of the Spirit. Otherwise, it's mediated through people and, of course, can be distorted. At that point of the Spirit, we are direct communion with the Holy Spirit. And there is the redemptive power, you see, comes into our whole being and can transform us. All this comes through the simple repetition of the mantra, which silences the discursive mind and opens up the inner mind to the presence of Christ within. 
But this must be based on a solid foundation of faith and love. And I think there's a real danger, you know, think the mantra is like magic. You've only got to go on repeating it and you'll get to heaven and you'll find uh, what you're seeking. But it can be a delusion, you see. A, a technique can always become self-defeating, you see. You just go on repeating words and they don't have their proper effect at all. The meditation of the mantra must always be sustained by faith and love which can alone can lead to contemplation. There is a danger there. You see, the mantra can become like magic. It's just a formula. You go on using it. It's going to take you into meditative contemplation. But it can become a mechanism, really. It's a psychological mechanism, and it can take you nowhere. Unless it's sustained by faith and love. Faith, you know, is exactly the opening of the inner heart, the inner spirit, to the reality of God. Faith is precisely that movement beyond to the transcendent mystery. And love is the movement of the heart uniting oneself with that transcendent mystery. And therefore, the, the mantra must always be an expression of faith and love. That's why I like a mantra it has some relation to Christian experience. Maranatha is obvious, of course. The Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ had mercy, is even more obvious. I think that link, you see, with faith is very important. Many mantras in transcendental meditation, for instance, they say it's merely psychological. It, it's, it attunes your psyche in some way. And it can be helpful, but I don't think it goes far enough, you see. So a Christian mantra which opens you up to the presence of Christ within, I think, is really very important. We must have this foundation of faith and love nourished by meditation on the scriptures, which Father John possessed so richly. He was a man of deep knowledge and wisdom in the scriptures. Uh, you see it in all his writings. He's deeply immersed, you see, in the scriptures and this knowledge of the Christian mystery. And we must bring that into meditation. This is con contemplation, properly speaking. It's only through faith and love we can come to contemplation. Uh, mantra or anything is a means to allow that faith and love to be activated. It is a process of unifying all the faculties of the soul at the point of the spirit where they are penetrated by the light of truth. Our meditation exposes us to the deep wounds in our nature and compels us to face the suffering of humanity from the beginning of time. It breeds compassion, you see. And this in turn must be expressed by compassion in our lives. We have to overcome the duality of the conscious mind which separates us from God and from one another and realize that in Christ this duality has been overcome. You know, original sin is a fall into duality. The original man was created to be unified. Body, soul were to be unified in the spirit and to open to God. And the fall of humanity is the fall from the spirit into the psyche, which means into the ego, your separated self, you see. Instead of opening continuously towards God and the spirit, you fall into your ego, and you're shut up now in your egg and you're afraid of everybody else and fighting to preserve yourself, you see. So that is the human fall is into this, into the psyche like that. Christ came to set us free from this duality. Once you fall into the psyche, everything becomes dual. 
good and evil and right and wrong and black and white and conscious, unconscious, mind and matter. The rational mind dualizes everything. And always beyond the dualism, beyond the mind, is the unifying spirit, you see. And meditation is to get beyond the dualities to the unifying spirit. And Jesus is the one who broke through. He, as St. Paul calls it, he broke down the dividing wall. You know, in the temple of Jerusalem, there was a wall, and no Gentile could pass over that wall. If he did, he'd have been killed, you know. It was for Jews and the chosen people, and these people were outside. And Jesus broke down that dividing wall. He opened it up to humanity. And we built all these walls again, of course. It's been our problem. He's broken down the dividing wall, as St. Paul calls it, that it's a hostility between us and has reconciled us in one body on the cross. And I think we have to take seriously that humanity is one body, one organic whole. You know, the fathers had a very strong sense of the Adam who is in all humanity. There's one Adam. And St. Thomas Aquinas has a beautiful phrase, omnes homines unus homo. All men are one man, as one organic whole, you see, and we're all members of that one man. And that one man fell and got divided and conflict and confusion, and Jesus restored humanity, not Jews or Christians or anybody in particular, restored humanity to that oneness, you see, the new Adam, you know, it's the unified human. A human race conscious of its fundamental unity and of its unity with the whole cosmos, and that, I think, is what we're recovering today. We're beginning to rediscover our common humanity. I think, you know, TV bringing all the events from the, all around the world to people is helping us to realize, you see, in the Gulf War or whatever, you see things happening in Iraq, and you realize it's part of your problem. And so we're seeing humanity as one, and we're seeing humanity as part of a cosmic whole. They're all part of this this earth, this planet, and molded by it, and growing from it, and living from it, and then we're all parts of one another, growing out with full uh, contact with one another, and as a one single organic whole, living whole. So we're discovering now, with the human race conscious of its fundamental unity, and its unity with the whole cosmos, we recover that unity beyond duality, which is our birthright. We've got to get beyond the dualities. You see, in our Hebrew tradition, it's, the duality is very strong. You see, I think humanity had to go through the dualism. You have to get the difference between right and wrong, and good and evil, and truth and error. You have to go through that stage of separating, dividing. But then you have to transcend it. And in the Old Testament, on the whole, they were in this duality. It's always the Israel was the holy people and the Gentiles were rejected and so on. You get, and the good were to be separated and the evil were to be condemned, you see. And that's the dualism which runs all through the Jewish tradition. Uh, Jesus came out of that Jewish tradition and he often uses the language of the Jewish tradition, uh, condemning people to everlasting fire and so on. But he was going beyond it all the time. And he was taking us to the point where we go beyond all the dualities. And the marvelous expression of it is in the Gospel of St. John, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us. Jesus is totally one with the Father, and yet he's not the Father. It's a non-dual relationship. It's not one and it's not two, see. It's a mystery of, of love. Love is not one and it's not two. When two people unite in love, they become one, and yet they have their distinction, you see. So <clears throat> Jesus and the Father had this total communion in love, and he asks us to become one as he is one with the Father. Total oneness in the non-dual being of the Father, you see. That's the Christian calling. So this is what we're called to, to recover this unity. And in India, you know, the idea of Advaita, non-duality, is fundamental. And the Indian tradition has this sense of going beyond the dualities. 
a Christian today can learn from the Indian tradition many things actually, but particularly this understanding of Advaita, of non-duality. You see, Christianity grew out of Israel. It entered into with a very dualistic tradition. It went through the Greco-Roman culture, which again was dualistic in another way, and it's continued. But today, I think we're meeting the religions of Asia and we're beginning to discover non-duality as the fundamental core of humanity, you see. And non-duality is not one and it's not two. It's, see, and it's not rational. You see, the rational mind wants to, to be one or two. You can't have it to both. <laughs> but it's beyond reason. And it's meditation when you get beyond. So we're being called, you see, to recover the unity beyond duality, which is our birthright, and which can alone answer the deepest need of humanity today. I'm praying a book, you know, on the scriptures of the world, to be read by Christians and others, to take it as part of our prayer, to meditate the scriptures of the world. And I've tried to show that every religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism I take, Sikhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, they all have a dualistic element from which they begin, and they all move into this non-dualism. But Judaism and Islam are particularly dualistic, and in their scriptures, they tend to be always dualistic. You can hardly find a surah in the Quran where there's not some terrible denunciation of the unbelievers and the fire and the doom and the punishment and all this coming. And it's a stage in religion. We mustn't reject it. I mean, people have to go through that stage. But the Sufi mystics, you see, from the 8th, 9th century onwards, they go right beyond it into non-dualism. And Sufi non-dualism is exactly like Indian non-dualism. And as the non-dualism of Eckhart in our Christian tradition, you see. So every religion goes beyond dualism to, in the mystical tradition, to the non-dual. And that is our calling, you see, to get beyond this dualism. And, and meditation is the only way. Get beyond the dualism. Stop your mind, you see. Then you discover this unifying principle behind it all. So that is really the hope and our calling. I do feel it's very important, you see, we've met together like this and we're all trying to meditate. We're all into this tradition and I think God is leading us and humanity through us. I mean, it's a call which is going all over the world, you see. People are meeting like this, for discovering this need, responding to it in different ways of meditation and we're being called to open our hearts to this non-dual mystery, which is the Holy Trinity is the non-dual mystery. It's not one. There's not one God like that, you see. It's the communion of love, and that is the non-dual reality. So that is our calling today. Om Tejas vina vadita mastu ma vidvishavahai Om Shanti 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 In using a mantra as a method of meditation, Father John was drawing on the Oriental tradition, though he was careful to show it had a basis in the tradition of the church. In order to understand the full power of the mantra, we need to reflect on this wider context. Meditation with the mantra has now spread all over the world, and we need to compare the Christian method, which St. Father John introduced, with those other methods based on the Oriental tradition. The source of this tradition goes back beyond recorded history. In its basic form, the recitation or chanting of a sacred word may go back to the beginning of all history. All ancient religion was based on a sense of the sacred, of a mysterious presence in nature and in the human heart. 
and this present was invoked by words and action, by chanting and ritual. The chanting which invoked the divine presence and the ritual which enacted its manifestation in different forms. From the earliest time we can know, human beings have been aware of this mysterious presence of the sacred. So that is a fact which we have to recognize that in all ancient religion, this profound sense of the sacred pervading the whole universe. And in India, of course, extremely powerful today in all the villages everywhere. It's really still basic to their life. So you have this awareness of a presence, and then that awakes in you a word, a song, you respond to this. And I've been thinking about it, you know, that it really presence is this mysterious rhythm of nature. There's a great rhythm behind the whole universe. And when we chant or sing, we put ourselves in touch, in tune with this rhythm of the universe. And a really deep music touches the depths, you see, of this rhythm of the universe. Superficial music merely takes off some accidental elements, but the deep music and the deep chant evokes the depth of it. You know, I was in a Benedictine monastery for 20 years in England, chanting the Gregorian chant every day. It has a wonderful power, you see. These ancient music like that it puts you immediately in touch with the sacred. You get this sense of the sacred. So, a chant is the typical way of tuning in to the rhythm of the universe, you could say. It's tuning us in, you see, to this deep rhythm of the universe. Beyond music, there are, there are words, you see, and there are certain words which open up this mystery of the divine presence. And in India, the word which came to be recognized as supreme mantra, the word which for the Hindu above all invokes the presence of God, was the pranava, the Om, usually spelled A-U-M. And the idea is that it embraces all sound, Aum. It's, it's a, an all-embracing sound. And it has tremendous sanctity in India, this word Aum. And there's a beautiful text, I think it's the Taittiriya Upanishad, which said, there is an Om which is silent and an Om which is sound. And the sound comes out of the silence. You see, Brahman himself, the Supreme, is the silence. And out of that silence of Brahman comes his word, his Om, and then it returns back to him. So when we utter the Om, we're invoking the Divine Presence and surrendering ourselves to it. The Om takes us back to the source, back to the Brahman, you see, to the source. So something tremendously sacred. It is as a result of this that it is commonly used as a mantra, repeated constantly by devout Hindus. For many that is their mantra, simply the repetition of the Aum. In Buddhism, the sacred mantra of Tibetan Buddhism is Aum Male Padme Hum. Oh, the jewel in the heart of the lotus. And that is the jewel in the heart of the universe, really, you see. It's the inner mystery behind everything. So this takes us to the heart of mantric meditation. It is a way of transcending the surface mind and entering into the depths of the soul where the hidden mystery is found. And this, of course, is the great need, you see, today to get beyond all the surface phenomena which are so tremendous today. Technology has, has developed them to such an extent that we have to make an effort to get beyond all the sense phenomena, all the noises and sounds coming to us, and enter into the silence and become aware of the sacred mystery behind it all. Beyond and behind and within it all is the sacred mystery always. And that is what uh, meditation and the mantra is supposed to do for us. mantric meditation. It is a way of transcending the surface mind and entering into the depths of the soul where the hidden mystery is found. Beyond and behind and within it all is the sacred mystery always. 
And that is what uh, meditation and the mantra is supposed to do for us. The Upanishads record the most profound search into this hidden mystery in human history. You see, something happened in India in the 5th, 6th century before Christ where they broke through beyond all outer appearances, beyond the body and the soul, the mind, into the hidden mystery of the universe. And for the Hindu today still, you know, it's to see behind the surface of life, behind all human experience and the whole psychology, to the hidden mystery at the heart of every person and of everything. And that is Brahman, that is the great word, you see. And that is the aim of life, is to realize Brahman. So they looked within themselves and saw the Atman, the spirit, as a source of consciousness. So they looked outside and saw this hidden mystery of the Brahman, and they looked within, within the body and the mind, and they saw the source of consciousness in the Atman. And then the great discoveries made this Atman is Brahman. I am Atman, Brahman Asti. That is one of the great Mahavakya, as they say, the great sayings. This self is Brahman, which means the root and ground of my own consciousness, my own being, is one with the root and ground of the whole creation. You're one with the whole creation at the depths of your being. So it's a wonderful intuition. And the sannyasi typically, you know, gives up his family, his home and his house, and he wanders and he goes and lives in a cave, searching to become one with the supreme mystery, with the Atman, the spirit. But to interpret his intuition remained a problem. How exactly was this Brahman, the source of being, related to human consciousness? And many philosophical systems were evolved between the, roughly the 8th and the 18th century for about a thousand years, very like our scholastic systems, you know, a whole series of philosophical systems involved trying to relate God, the Supreme, with the human being, you see. And each was different. The most famous, perhaps, is the Advaita, the non-duality of Shankara in the 8th century. And he emphasized, above all, the oneness. God and the world, God and the soul, they're not two, Advaita. Not, he didn't say they're one, that they're not two. And there is a profound, a mystical relationship between God and the soul, really. And that, among the educated, is the most common philosophy, really. And incidentally, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas was very, very interesting that he always insisted that the world is a relationship to God. The world does not exist alongside God. There's no God there and a world here. They're not two. The world is a relationship to God. It exists from God and to God. It has no being in itself at all. So we're very near to some kind of Advaita, you see, in our basic teaching. So throughout its history, Hinduism has struggled with this mystery of the relation between God and the soul, God and the world, and it's one of the great creative philosophical searches in human history, you know. For a thousand years, they were searching to express how to relate God and the world, God and the soul. Yet we must remember that all these philosophical systems are attempts to express in logical terms a mystery which cannot properly be expressed. That is our problem, you see, it's beyond word, beyond thought. That is why all philosophy has to take refuge in the mantra. They go beyond thought and seek the answer to the problem in meditation beyond word and thought. See, when we meditate, we let the senses go calm and quiet, and we let the mind go calm and quiet, and then we're no longer speaking, we're no longer thinking in the ordinary sense, and then this awareness can come, the awareness of the inner mystery. Sahaviryam karavavahai Tejasvinavaditamastu Mavidvishavahai Om Shanti 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 Christian meditation with a mantra is also a way of entering into the depth of the soul and discovering the presence of the hidden mystery within. 
But how does a Christian understand this mystery? What is the difference between the Hindu, the Buddhist, Muslim, the Christian experience? Because all alike enter into this depth, you see. You go beyond your body and senses, beyond your mind and your concept, and you open yourself to the mystery within. And each one experiences and expresses it in a somewhat different way. And we're seeking today, how do we reconcile these differences? And we need to try to discern what is a particular Christian experience of the mystery. How does a Christian understand this mystery? It is first of all a discovery of the spirit within, the spirit of which St. Paul says, these things God has revealed to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. In the human being there is this spirit which searches everything, even the depths of God. Every human being in that depth is open to God. And this is a hidden mystery of every person, though many, of course, ignore it. Clearly, all Christians meet with Hindus, Buddhists and Muslims in this depth of the spirit, beyond reason, which is known in meditation as we open our hearts to what St. Paul called the mystery of Christ. Again and again in the New Testament, especially the Ephesian Colossians, you get this posterior to Christo, the mystery of Christ. Something beyond human expression which is encountered when we enter into the depths of the heart. At this point of the spirit, beyond the rational mind. And that is the problem, it's beyond the rational mind. For the scientist and the typical Westerner today, the rational mind is the mind. There's nothing beyond it, you see. And if you try to go beyond, you're a lunatic, you're, you're going mad. <laughs> Very different for them if you tell them beyond the rational mind with all its concepts and its dualities, there is some wisdom which transcends the rational mind. And that is what we call the mystery, and what St. Paul proclaimed, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, you see, he says. That was what he was proclaiming, and what we have to proclaim. Not easy today, but we have to say there is something beyond science and, and philosophy and any form of rational knowledge. For a Christian, this is precisely the mystery of Christ. This is the object of Christian meditation. It will encounter Christ in the depths of one's being, not mediated through words and thoughts, but known by his presence in the Spirit. When Jesus was about to leave his disciples, he promised to send them the spirit of truth to guide them into all truth. It is this spirit which we encounter when we enter into the depths of our own spirit. As St. Paul says, the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So in meditation, we're entering into that depth of the spirit where we encounter the spirit of God. Of course, it's true, we have, as I mentioned before, we have to read the Bible, you see. We need words and thoughts, as your mind needs that instruction and faith. So we have to begin with meditating the Bible and the teaching of the church, but then we have to go beyond it, you see. And that's where many people get upset, you see. They feel the Bible is everything, and you must stick to the Bible alone. But the Bible is still words and thoughts, you see. Word of God is beyond words and thoughts. Jesus himself is beyond the Bible, you see. He is the reality which is manifested in the Bible. We have to try to enter into that hidden mystery where we encounter the Holy Spirit. And it's very important, you see, Jesus didn't leave the New Testament behind, you see. That came later. He left the Holy Spirit behind. And that was his own spirit and the spirit of the Father. And in meditation we try to go beyond the limitations of words and thoughts to open our hearts to the hidden mystery of the spirit and to be really in the presence of Christ and the Father, you see, to enter into the mystery of the Trinity. So it's a tremendous undertaking, you know, which we're, we're doing. We're really trying to break through to the ultimate truth and reality. And this is what the world is seeking today, you see. As long as you're in the world of dualities and of churches and uh, doctrines and religions and so on, there are always conflicts and always will be.
And only when we go beyond all outer expressions, all sacraments in that sense, outward signs, and enter into the hidden mystery, can we touch the point which unites all, you see. As long as we're on the rigor of ritual and doctrine, we're all fighting one another, and we may kill one another. But when we can get beyond the ritual and the doctrine, through the mystery itself, then we touch the point of human unity, you see, where religions can be reconciled. And we're really here to reconcile this religious conflicts in the world, you see. And it's this is our calling to enter into that depth of the spirit where we encounter Jesus' own spirit. Jesus lives in the church through his spirit. When he departed from, from his disciples, he ascended, and he returned in the spirit. And he's in every disciple, actually in every human being, because no one is actually outside that grace. <laughs> there is that presence within. And when we enter into the silence of the meditation, we encounter the real presence, you see. And here, I think one must be careful, you know, we speak of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but of course it's a very central in our life, in our religion. But it's still a sacramental presence. In the Eucharist, Jesus is present under the sign of bread and wine. We need some sign like that to touch, and to taste, and to, to share. But the presence itself is not limited by the sign. Jesus is present in the heart of all. And when we leave the church, we don't leave Jesus in the tabernacle. It's, it's, it's simply a sign of his presence. We carry him along in our hearts. And in meditation, we try to go directly to the presence in the heart. You see, that is our aim. Om Purnamadaha Purnavidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasiva Purnavadaya Purnameva Avasisyate Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace.